Well, Dan has prayed and led in prayer for our church. And we need to pray for Dan. As some of you know, maybe most of you do, that he commutes, he telecommutes two and a half hours to Crete, Illinois. And uh, they just told him he can't telecommute anymore. So starting tomorrow, two and a half hours down, two and a half hours back. Tuesday, two and a half hours down, and they're going to be spending some nights down there, and we really need to pray for them, pray for God to provide a, a job for them. Just things have changed. He's known for about two weeks now, something like that. So let me pray for Dan, and uh, pray for our time in the Word in Matthew 23. <clears throat> Lord, we know that you are a God who provides, and Lord, we think of Dan and what a, a great job you have provided for he and Christina even to go with him. To work many days at home, to travel but a few days into work to get his programming done. And Lord, I would pray that you would guide him now as he wants to be in Rockford and wants to find a job around here. I pray that you would be gracious to the Scott family and provide them with a, a job that will allow him to stay here and allow him to, um, to commute a lot less than he is. Lord, we pray that you would provide that job in your time and in your way. And in the meantime, I would pray for strength for Dan and Christina as they uh, endure a, a long commute. I pray that you would be gracious to them and strengthen them with a, a divine strength to help them, uh, even this time, which would be hard. And yet, certainly, the, the difficulties here, though, uh, though great, we do rejoice that you have given jobs and provided for them. And we pray that we would rejoice in a future date at your great and wondrous provision for them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I trust your Bibles are open to Matthew 23. We have been going in recent weeks through the woes of Jesus upon the scribes and the Pharisees. It's been time after time after time after time that Jesus has pronounced strong condemnation against these people. And in recent weeks, I've taken the slant on this passage, real reasoning like this. If Jesus condemned the scribes and Pharisees for these things, then we ought to avoid these things to escape our own condemnation. Appropriately, my messages have been titled, How to Avoid Condemnation. And in each woe, I have sought to draw out a lesson for us. Like in verse 13, when the, the scribes and Pharisees didn't get into heaven and prohibited others, I said, we need to know how to get into heaven. We need to get the gospel right. In verse 14, when they used their religion for a prophet, I said, serve others and not yourself. In verse 15, when these false leaders would, would lead other people to hell, making them twice as much a son of hell as, as you, I say, don't follow false leaders. In verses 16 to 22, these blind guides would, would swear by right, the, the, the temple rather than swearing by the gold in the temple. And they use these word choices. And I said, just be truthful in your language, in your vows, and the things you say. In verses 23 through 24, they had paid minute attention to the, to the spices, and yet they'd missed the meteor, weightier matters of the law, as Jesus says there, mercy, justice, and faithfulness. And I said there, you need to focus on the right things. And Lord willing, today, we're going to finish up with the last three woes from verses 25 through 36. Here it is, point number six in my outline, or point number one today, whatever you want to call it. You need to, if you want to avoid condemnation, clean your insides. Clean your insides. <clears throat> this comes straight from verses 25 and 26. Let me read them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. Jesus uses the analogy here of, of washing dishes. So it's appropriate for us to think about washing dishes, right? 
Do you have experience washing dishes? Yeah? Sarah, are you the dishwasher at your house? Is that right? Sarah knows. Kids, other kids, do you know about washing dishes? Rachel, do you know about washing dishes? Dad's saying, no. You know what? You should know about washing dishes. Washing dishes will help you apply the Bible. Men, do you know about washing dishes? Yeah? Yeah, maybe I could pick on some. Better not. Men, you ought to know about washing dishes. Now, in the days of Jesus, he's not talking about taking dishes and dumping them in the dishwasher, putting some soap in there, closing it up, and turning the dial. He's talking about filling your sink with soapy water. He's talking about taking a cup in one hand and and a rag in another and, and washing it and cleaning it out and then putting it in the cupboard for next time. Now, let me ask you, when you take your cup in your left hand and your sponge in your right hand, so I was doing this recently, so I could use this as an illustration, where do you scrub? I know, for me, I'm always scrubbing on the inside, right? Isn't that where you scrub? Isn't that where you clean? Now, imagine this. What if I, you know, just um, spent all my time just washing all of this all of this on the outside, just like, and I like this apple, you know, and I just scrub, you know, and I'm scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. Is that where I ought to be spending my time? You who are familiar with washing dishes, is that what you ought to do? No. Now, certainly the outside is important, right? I mean, imagine if you have this cup and you, you go to eat and there's a, this, this piece of lasagna casserole on the outside. That, that would be no good, right? Okay, the, the outside is good, but oftentimes when you clean the inside, right, the outside as it sloshes through the water, right, just works pretty well. But these Pharisees, they were doing this. They were spending all the time on the outside of the dish, making it sparkly clean. And you know what the inside of the dish looked like? It looked like this. Would you, look, would you like that at your table? Oh, you go to drink and you drink this slop and slime of dirt and manure and sticks and rock. Would you like that? Maybe Aaron's the only guy in the congregation who might say, Mom, that's really cool. You know what happened if that took place at your house? If that took place at my house, you know what happened? I'd be fired and Yvonne would clean the dishes all the time. Maybe I'm onto something. <laughs> Now, we laugh at how ridiculous that is because obviously that's not the case. But this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus said in verse 25, You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. This was a religion of the scribes and Pharisees. It was all external. They didn't deal with the matters of the heart. They simply dealt with how you looked on the outside. And in their minds, if everybody looked clean on the outside, you're clean. And that helps to explain why these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes took much care in their Sabbath observances to be done according to the law because they wanted everything externally to be done according to the law. But Jesus said, you've missed it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. He says, God desires compassion, not sacrifice. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's not just about the external things. It's about a heart that wants to do good on the Sabbath. They took great care in the worship and made sure that everything was was done properly. All the words were exactly right. All the forms were right there. And Jesus told them that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. He said, in vain do you worship me. Because outside they were worshiping, but he said it's in vain because the heart wasn't right. They took great care to make sure they washed their hands according to the tradition of the elders so they might not be defiled. You remember what Jesus said? He said, hear and understand, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This is what defiles the man. It's not going in. It's what comes out. In fact, I remember reading someplace that we like, each of us eat like two pounds of dirt a year. By the time you eat all everything you're eating, there's just enough dirt. It, that doesn't defile you. It's not the dirt that defiles you. It's what comes in, what comes out from within. 
Unless you think this is a problem only with the scribes and the Pharisees, think again. This was entrenched in the Jewish mind. When Jesus made this statement about it's not what comes into you which defiles you, but what comes out from your heart that defiles you, his disciples took him aside and said, Jesus, can you explain this parable to us? And so Jesus had to speak to his disciples. This is Peter, Andrew, James, and John thought that it was external and not internal. Jesus said, everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. These are the things that defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. You almost get the sense here that Jesus is saying, read my lips. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out that defiles it's not the, the importance. The outside is not the important thing. What's the important thing is the inside. So it comes out. And that's exactly the issue for the scribes and the Pharisees. Their outside was clean. They kept the Sabbath perfectly. They worshipped the Lord using the right words, the right feasts, the right times. They washed their hands every time before their meals. But their heart was full of sin. And though they did everything externally exactly right, Jesus condemns them. I mean, think about us and, and finding, you, you look at somebody, perfect churchgoer, never misses Sunday school class, always comes to prayer meeting, always comes to serve at Awana. All these things on the outside, and yet they can be condemned for a wicked, sinful heart. Jesus said, for these Pharisees and scribes inside, they were full of two things, robbery and self-indulgence. Certainly he could have picked Many, many other things, but he chose to focus on these two. So we'll spend a little bit of time focusing on these two. Your versions may say greed and self-indulgence. Or your version may say extortion and self-indulgence. Or your version may say extortion and excess. Whatever it is, it's these two things. The first is robbery. The idea is here is talking about taking what's not yours. The idea of the Greek word is that men were grabbers. They're harpizos. They were, they were those who just grabbed. If there was an opportunity to take, they took. If there was an opportunity to have, they grabbed. But Jesus said, think about this, that this was in their hearts. They were robbers in their hearts. right? And this is where some of the translations, I think, well, have translated this greedy. Right? It's the internal desire that, that wants there in the heart. It's the heart that covets. And so I simply ask you, is... Is your heart covetous? Is your heart desirous of more and more? This is the American sin. Wealth abounds around us. And you'd think that the passions at some point would be quenched. At some point you'd think we say, we've got enough, we don't need any more. But what happens? Our society, we do it more and more and more and more. And that, that will never be satisfied. That will always seek more and more because of this internal greed wanting to have. So what's your heart? Are you clinging tightly to your things? Are you longing for the things that you don't have, greedily seeking after them? Or when God blesses with you, then are you, do you have an open hand to give them? I've quoted before Randy Alcorn, which says, when God raises your standard of living, more income, better job, raise... The proper response is to raise your standard of giving. So when God abundantly blesses, it ought to be given out. So Lord prospers you, do you freely give it away? Or do you keep it? These Pharisees were nice and religious on the outside, but inwardly they were covetous, and for that they were condemned. Flee that. Second term isn't too difficult. Self-indulgence. The Greek word here is literally, you can't control yourself. You, you, you can't hold yourself in. Ah, kratois. Ah, you can't kratois, like strength. You don't have strength over yourself. He's saying these scribes and Pharisees look nice. But were the truth known, the passions of their hearts were out of control. Oh, they controlled them on Sabbath mornings. When they were home, boy, the envy got the best of them. When they were home, boy, did they have, were, were they angry. Couldn't control it. Something would happen and they'd burst a frame. 
But in the synagogue, oh, they looked nice. They had sexual sin, perhaps. Couldn't control their body. In fact, that's the only other place this word is used. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. If you lack self-control, you should be married. Maybe exhibit an overeating. Just, just can't curb your appetite. Maybe exhibit it in gossiping. Your tongue just keeps talking. Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. You just can't control it. It's these inner passions. Just let loose. i got to talk, got to talk, got to talk, got to say something. When they came to the synagogue, all was well. Smiles on their faces. Hymns sung, scriptures heard, but their appetites were never under control. And these things led to condemnation. And Jesus tells you to clean your insides, right? Look at verse 26. He says, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that outside it may become clean also. This is always the teaching of Jesus. He's always getting at the heart. He's saying the heart is the key to it. You clean the heart. And then he said, the outside will be clean also. You know, this is worth, imagine my cup here. And it doesn't work like this, okay? But it does work like this with religion. If I would clean all this dirt and muck out of here, somehow our bodies and our life is like semi-permeable. And the soap which is in will come out and we will be clean on the outside. The cup doesn't work. You've got to scrub the outside and the inside of the cup. But here's Jesus saying, is you clean the inside and it's going to be so clean that it just oozes to the outside. And a right heart will walk in a right way. And that's what Jesus is saying. And he always went after the heart. You remember when Jesus, back in Matthew 22, you can look at it there, was asked what the greatest commandment is? What did he say, kids? What's the greatest commandment? You shall... With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? Some versions say with all your strength. Just everything internally within you, that's how you should be. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, focusing internal. Jesus always took his dagger and went to the heart. Jesus in these words spoke about this internal love which expressed itself in love to God and love to others. So God has built us, right? What is in comes out. And that's, by the way, why it's what comes out of the heart. And from the heart come adulteries and robberies and other things, slanders. God has always placed a high priority on the hearts. It's not that Jesus came into the world and said, Okay, guys, change in program. We're focusing on the heart now. Before it was external and now it's internal. He's not saying that. In fact, when he was asked what the greatest commandment is, he quoted twice from the Pentateuch. And both those times it was addressed to the heart. The Bible is clear. Proverbs 4.23 Watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. It's your heart that the issues of life come from. Jeremiah 17.10 I the Lord, I search the heart and I test the mind. Isaiah 66 verse 2 To this one I look. Who is the one I look to? The one who's nice and shiny on the outside? No, no. God looks to the one who's humble and contrite of spirit, trembles at my word. The one who internally just has this fear of God. In 1 Samuel 16, the story is told about how Samuel the prophet came to select a king from the sons of Jesse. You remember Jesse had how many sons? Do you remember? I forget. How many? He had eight. But since Samuel is coming to anoint the king, you know what he does? He gathers seven of them so that Samuel might select the right one. And the, the first one was Eliab. Certainly, he's the oldest. He's the Lord's anointed. He was beautiful and tall and handsome. Tall, dark, and handsome. T-D-H is what this guy was. And the Lord said, don't look on his appearance, the height of his stature. I've rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. Eliab, not the guy. Second guy, Abinadab, passed before Samuel, not the guy. And they had five more guys passed before him. And every time, God said, not the guy, not the guy, not the guy. I don't care how nice and beautiful they looked outside, they weren't there. And then Samuel's like, are, are there more? He said, well, yeah, there's one David. Why do you think David was out tending the sheep? When the Sam brothers... Yeah, he was the youngest, he was the smallest, he was a servant. Certainly he's not going to be the guy. Are you kidding me? That's David over there. And he says in 1 Samuel 7, okay, let's not even sit down until he comes back. And so go out and get him 
And he comes back in and he was anointed. Why? Because the Lord looks at the heart. It was said of David that he was a man after God's own heart. It was the heart of David that made him great. So is your heart clean before the Lord? There's only one way to make a heart clean. It's by faith in Christ. You know, we use soap to clean our bodies. Most of you use soap this morning. And we clean the outside. We use shampoo to clean our hair. Any of you use shampoo this morning? Many of us did. We use toothpaste to brush your teeth. Did any of you brush your teeth? I hope you brushed your teeth. But for our souls, there's only one cleansing agent. It's the blood of Jesus. When Christ Jesus died, He died for His church with the purpose that Ephesians 5.26, He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Jesus died for the church to cleanse the church with His blood, to present the church before Him holy and blameless and without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It's by faith in Christ His blood is applied to you. And so I just say, believe on Christ. Allow His blood to be applied to you. Well, that's my first point. To avoid condemnation, you need to clean your insides. Verses 25 and 26. Okay, now we come to verse 27 and 28. Here's my second point. You ready? Clean your insides. Is that right, Aaron? Same point. Two times because Jesus says the exact same thing here. So we're going to bang it again. Verse 27, 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says the exact same things, but he changes the illustration. Rather than using a cup and a dish, he talks about a coffin. I'm not going to bring a coffin in for you this morning. <laughs> you got to use your imagination, all right? But this imagination, as much as we think about a coffin, would be particularly applicable to the disciples to whom Jesus was speaking. If you go to Jerusalem today, <clears throat> you stand on the Temple Mount where Jesus probably is, okay? Because if you look at uh, chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus came out from the Temple. He's probably there on the Temple. And if you look to the east, you look up in the horizon, and there is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a huge cemetery. I mean, not all of it is cemetery, but there is a large portion of it that today is cemetery. It was same the Jews back then. Their, their burial practices were a little different than ours in several ways. But one is often they would put the, the tombs, the graves, on top of the ground. I'm not sure whether it's the ground is so hard. It was difficult to dig, some of my guests. Uh, but they would have these tombs, these, these square boxes, even built from, uh, from stone, you know, enough for a body. They would just sit in there and certainly would be st- sealed and, and kept tight. And one of the things that the uh, Jews used to do every year before Passover in preparation for the, the massive number of crowds coming upon Jerusalem is that they would take these tombs and whitewash them and they would make them all nice and shiny. And so imagine Mount of Olives, big cemetery, all these things freshly painted white. It's been said even that the Mount of Olives, especially when the sun came down, glistened the time of the Passover. It would have been pretty, but the purpose wasn't to make the Mount of Olives pretty. The purpose was this. you got somebody living in Galilee, Nazareth, coming up to Jerusalem to come and worship. And they don't really know so much about where everything is, and so they paint everything white, lest a worshiper come and you kind of lean against a stone and say, oh, that was a tomb. Because if they would lean against something, it's a tomb, they touched a dead person, they would be defiled. They couldn't celebrate the Passover. And the Scripture is very clear about that. In Numbers chapter 19, it says you touch a corpse, and they included that. You touch the coffin outside, you're defiled. You've got to be cleansed. It takes seven days to be cleansed. Seven days... Passover done is celebrated, you're, you're done. In fact, even in Numbers chapter 9, there were some people defiled. You know, they celebrated the Passover for the second time ever. Some people were defiled for touching a corpse. 
And so God made the provision that for those who are defiled and can't celebrate the Passover during the first month, 15th day, they can celebrate it the second month, 15th day. Kind of like the Passover for those who missed it. Well, the city officials in Jerusalem wanted to make sure that those who were traveling from other areas would know clearly where these tombs are, lest they accidentally be defiled. They would know that anything white, you stay away from that. You could talk to your kids. Hey, you see anything white? Don't go near anything really white. There could be a tomb. It could be defiled. And our trip was in vain to celebrate the Passover. So, you think about the illustration of Jesus. When he's saying these things, what time of year is it? It's the Passover. These tombs are freshly painted. All beautiful outside. And he's saying, you guys are just like those tombs. You, you take great care washing the outsides, but inside, you know what? You stinketh. Right? That's what Lazarus, Mary said about Lazarus. He'd been dead for four days, but Lord, he stinketh. It's in the King James, I think. But the body deteriorates, causes a great stink, and that's why they sealed the tomb so the stink didn't get out. Eventually, the stink will come out. And Jesus said, these scribes and Pharisees, look at here, in verse 28, are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. A whitewashed tomb is a perfect picture of hypocrisy, pretending to be something on the outside, but inside rotting and stenchful and terrible. I want to illustrate this with a few stories. I I remember reading the story. I'm not sure if it's true or not. It's probably not true, but it illustrates the point as well. Um, High-profile company in New York advertised for a sales job. And one applicant replied this. He said, I'm at present selling furniture at the address below. You may judge by my ability as a salesman if you will stop in to see me at any time, pretending you're interested in furniture. When you come in, you can identify me by my red hair. And I'll have no way of identifying you. Such salesmanship as I exhibit during your visit, therefore, will be no more than my usual work-a-day approach and not a special effort to impress the prospective employer. The story goes on that out of 1,500 applicants, this man got the job. Why? Because he wasn't a hypocrite. Right? He, he did what he always did. He interviewed on the job because that's the job he was doing. And people can look at that and say, oh, you know, he's true and genuine. It's a little bit like church, going home, seeing you, seeing you at home, seeing you at work, seeing when you're alone. Because you are what you are alone. And I can tell you, that hypocrites can be deceitful. I mean, they can look really good on the outside. I remember my first year in seminary out in California encountering such a hypocrite. You know, here I was in California studying the Bible in Master's Seminary, really for the first time studying the Bible in depth, having the time of my life, meeting lots of new people. It was a wonderful time. I remember one man particularly well. He is from down south, so I had a, a slight southern drawl, which was really, really kind. Made it kind of, you know, people who talk from the south are real nice and hospitable. And he was, he was a nice guy. And uh, he worked in the book shack, right? Tabs, you know what the book shack is? What is it? It's a bookstore right there at the church for the seminary and for the church. And he worked there and he was involved in ministering to college students. There were about 500 students involved in the college ministry at that time. And he was ministering to some of them at one campus house. And so we were together some, and we certainly knew each other well. You know, we, we first name basis, friendly guy. I didn't know him really well, but he was a happy guy. You know, we had classes together. We'd greet each other. And one day we're sitting in Hebrew class. And uh, in fact, I remember, I remember the class. And this is probably why I remember the guy so well. We're sitting in Hebrew class, and there came a knock on the door. That doesn't normally happen very often when you're in an academic institution and in class. Right, Darcy, you're not disturbed too much during class and i know that through college i mean that's like sacred you got okay wait till the class is done and then we'll tell them you know death in the family we'll we'll wait till class is over so to have someone come knock on the door it's a little strange and then you open the door and i was sitting here and open the door opened on the front left and they opened it up and i saw a couple of police officers and at that point it that's strange and uh, the police officers called the guy by name pointed him in the back and said hey could you come here we didn't know what's going on. And um, the professor didn't know what was going on. After he left, I remember the professor, the godly man, 
And so let's just pray for him right now. So we spent a, a season just praying for him. We don't know what's happening. We don't know. Later it comes out. This man was stealing books in the book shack. Taking them. Pilfering them. On several occasions, the uh, employees there at the book shack confronted him. You know, the Matthew 18 was all laid out later. It was done individually with several. He refused to admit it. He refused to repent. He refused to confess and eventually reached the point where they brought in the police to bring criminal charges as he was unrepentant. He was eventually, eventually, that day he was dismissed from the seminary. All right, Here he was training to be a man of God, to preach the word of God, putting up a nice front, but inwardly filled with iniquity. He was a thief. He was a hypocrite, just as these scribes and Pharisees were. And he was deceitful. We had no clue what was going on. And that's how good hypocrites are. And that story may be a bit extreme, but the lesson is clear, right? The focus of our lives needs to be on our inner self. If you're one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside, you're headed for condemnation. You are. Jesus said this, these guys were great on the outside, but wicked on the inside, and they were condemned to hell. That's why it's important on the inside to have a clean heart that can only be achieved through faith in Christ. In fact, this was promised in the New Covenant. Ezekiel 36 promised, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Now these Pharisees didn't have new hearts. They knew by the letter of the law, by the letter of the prophet, that, <coughs> that God would promise a new heart. God would replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. But these, these Pharisees were walking around with this stone heart. And they were trying like crazy to act like they had new hearts. And you know what? That's difficult. It's a very difficult thing to have a a stone heart, be corrupt on the inside, and fake everybody out. Remember what Abraham Lincoln said, right? You can fool all the people some of the time. And you can fool some of the people all the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time. And a hypocrite trying to fool people will eventually be found out. Charles Spurgeon once said, Hypocrisy is a hard game to play, for it's one deceiver against many observers. And for certain, it's a miserable trade, which will earn at last, as its certain climax, a tremendous bankruptcy. And like my friend, if you're a hypocrite, you will be found out. The New Testament writers picked up here on the promise of God giving us a new heart so we don't have to play the game. Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Someone believes in Christ. God changes them. It's called regeneration in the New Testament. Changes us to be a, a different nature than we were before. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? Born from above. Changed divinely by the nature, by, by, by God's nature, coming upon us and changing our nature, giving us clean hearts and new hearts and new desires. And I simply ask you, do you have new desires? Are you different? Is the outside different than the inside or are you the same? And I say with you, dear people, plead with God that He would clean your insides. Listen to the prayer of King David after he was caught in adultery. Bathsheba said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Hear the wash. Blot them out, O Lord. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and cleanse me and make me clean. He says, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You want to be clean? Look to Christ alone. He's the one that's able to save you from your sins. He's the one who can transform your hearts. You look to Him. You look to His work on the cross. It's your only hope. Well, let's finish quickly with our, our last point. 
There are many verses, much detail. We'll go through this fairly quickly. If you want to avoid condemnation, clean your insides. If you want to avoid condemnation, clean your insides. If you want to avoid your condemnation, here it is, point number three or point number eight, whatever it is. Recognize your sinfulness. Recognize your sinfulness. And this is where, you know, a hypocrite is one who pretends outside everything's okay. But the genuine one is the one who sees his own indwelling sin and sees the struggle with it and recognizes it and confesses it. Verse 29 starts like all other woes do. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Then he continues on to say what the point is here. He says, For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Okay, See what they're saying here? They're saying that, yeah, the prophets, they had blood shed and people didn't like them. But today we have mounted, you know, these these monuments. We don't know exactly what they are, but it's giving some kind of honor to these great men of the past who were hated by the Jewish people. These Pharisees knew that they were hated. I mean, you think about Moses. Moses in the wilderness, the people grumbled against him. It was hard for Moses to lead because the people didn't want to follow because they grumbled. They didn't like God's man. I think of Samuel. The people didn't listen to him either. They demanded a king. Even contrary to Samuel's advice, Isaiah was despised. Tradition has it that he was sawn in two by his own countrymen. Jeremiah was hated. On several occasions, I was thumbing through Jeremiah this week. He's placed in prison on several occasions. One time thrown into a well and left to die. I mean, the the picture there is he's got a well and just as the mud slop is here, he went like into this mud slop. It was kind of just left there to die. And he had to have someone come to the king to plead. Hey, he's going to die if you leave him there. Eventually was rescued out of that. It was the people of Israel who seized Jeremiah and said to him, you must die. Why? Because he was proclaiming righteousness of God. And the people of Israel hated it. Elijah gave a great summary. After the altar to Baal, He's victorious there. He said, The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, O Lord. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. The sons of Israel hated the righteous people, hated the prophets that God sent to them. And so what did the people of Jesus Day do? Oh, we like Elijah. You know, here's a thing of Elijah. And we like David. And we like Moses. And we like Abraham. And we like... You know, all these people who were hated in their days. And they convinced their minds that if they lived in Israel during those times, why, certainly they wouldn't have, you know, sought Elijah's life. They would have stood up for Elijah. Certainly they wouldn't have grumbled in the wilderness. No, they would have backed old buddy Moses. Here's the problem. They didn't recognize their sinfulness. They thought themselves to be blameless. Put in that situation, oh, I wouldn't do that. I've often thought about myself living in the days of Jesus. If I was in the crowd and Pilate said to us, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who's called Christ? I've often thought, what would I say? Everybody around me is saying, Barabbas, release Barabbas. I know my wicked heart. You know what I think I would say? I'd say, we want Barabbas! We want Barabbas! It's only the grace of God that would work within me at all that would say, no, no, we want the Christ. Because I know my sinfulness, I know my wickedness, and I know that I would be just like the crowd and follow along with the crowd were it not for the grace of God. If I were in the crowd and Pilate asked, what shall I do with you who's called the Christ? What would I say? He's innocent. Let him go. Everybody else around is saying, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. And do I think that I would stand up and say, let him go. I don't. But by the grace of God, I would be saying, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Because I know my own sin. As bold as I might promise with Peter, Lord, even though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
even if I make a bold statement like that, what's going to take place? I know how I'm like Peter. I'm weak and feeble of heart. And I very well would have denied our Lord three times that night as Peter did. I know the weakness of my heart. But these scribes and Pharisees didn't recognize their sin, right? They fooled themselves into thinking that they were more righteous than they were. <clears throat> if we had been living in those days, we wouldn't have put them to death. We wouldn't have been partners with them. We would have stood for righteousness. And that was their error. They didn't realize their sinfulness. And so I ask you, when you think of yourself, do you recognize your own sinfulness? Do you realize that you have a sinful, prone to wandering heart? Or do you think that I'm really better than you really are? You know what? There's hope for the soul that realizes his sin. Remember the story told in Luke chapter 18 of the two men who went up to the temple? The one couldn't even look up to the temple and beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. <clears throat> and Jesus said about him, he went down to his house, what? Justified. There's hope for the one who recognizes his sin. But for the one who doesn't recognize his sin, that was the Pharisee, conveniently. Think about this. He went to the temple, and do you know what the content of his prayer was? He prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. I'm not like this tax gatherer, right? I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I thank you. He thought himself to be righteous. And the one who thinks himself to be righteous, there's no hope. And Jesus said that man didn't go down to his house justified. And it's the same thing here in Matthew 23 with the woes. These scribes and Pharisees thought themselves to be righteous, and Jesus exposed the game. Look at verse 31. Consequently, you bear witness about yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus said, you all testify that you are sons of these murderers. Your fathers are guilty. And as they sinned, they would further add up, right? Filling up the measure of their guilt. And as a result, would spend eternity in hell. And Jesus says, you know what? You think you're righteous. You are really a son of your fathers. In fact, I'm going to test you. The test comes in verses 34 through 36. He says, you think yourself to be righteous. Listen, you're going to fill it up. He says, therefore, behold, I'm sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the very first martyr, Steve Belanger talked about last week, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, probably a man who was murdered just in recent days. Truly I say to you, all this shall come upon this generation. Jesus is saying this. You guys think you're so good. You guys think you wouldn't have participated in with your, pro with your fathers. You're going to do the same thing. He says this. In your day, verse 36, in your generation, you are going to be sent some prophets and wise men and scribes, just like your fathers. Can you think of some prophets and wise men and scribes? that they were sent? Can you think of some names? Maybe some names come to mind? How about like Peter and James and John? Maybe guys like Stephen and Paul and Andrew and Thomas and Matthew and Philip and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and Simon, the prophet, the, your fathers were sent guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah, but you're going to get guys like, like John and Paul and Peter and James. And how well did they do? Jesus said, you're going to whip them with whips. You're going to beat them with clubs. You're going to crucify them on crosses. You're going to be just like your fathers, though you claim otherwise. Because see, they didn't see their sin. They didn't anticipate how wicked they were. And you know what? All that came to pass. You just read through Acts. 
And you read that Peter and John were flogged for preaching the gospel. Stephen was killed for preaching the gospel. Paul sent his last years as a political criminal on account of the hatred the Jews had to the gospel of Christ. And last week, Steve Belanger went through the list of the 11 disciples of Jesus. I don't need to repeat them now, but all of them without exception, well, with the exception of John, were killed. These are righteous prophets against this generation who said, no, no, we're righteous and we wouldn't partake with our fathers. We would have stood up for Elijah and for Jeremiah. And John spent his last years in political exile, certainly caused through his belief and trust in preaching the gospel. These scribes and Pharisees thought they had all things under control. They thought themselves to be righteous. But when the time of testing came, says, okay, are you really righteous? Here comes the test. They trusted themselves and they failed miserably. And the result is here. The guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, came upon them. That's a lot of blood. The Lord's bondservants have always been hated and it all came down upon them. They were guilty. They were condemned because they failed to recognize their sinfulness. So, when the day of trial comes, are you going to trust in the Lord to strengthen you or are you going to trust in your own righteousness because you don't see your sin? I believe that these hypocrites failed because they failed to recognize their sinfulness. They failed to see that they are just like their fathers. And you will fail if you say, Oh, I wouldn't have put Jesus to death. Oh, my friend, you would. Let's close our our message this morning by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's It's a great closing passage. This is a lesson that comes screaming out for us. It's the same exact lesson. Paul applies to the Old Testament. I want to apply it to the scribes and the Pharisees. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul lays out the history of the Israelites. Though God poured immense blessings upon them, though God had been with them in the wilderness, miraculously feeding them every day with the manna, though God poured out these great, tremendous, abundant blessings on them, they were immoral idolaters who grumbled. And God destroyed them for their grumbling. And then verse 11 comes the key. You can read verses 1 through 10 at your leisure. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Right? The things in the Old Testament, when you see people sinning and God destroying them, that ought to be your example. Lest you sin too and God destroy you as well. We need to learn from the Israelites and we need to learn from these scribes and Pharisees. Here's the lesson, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That was the problem of these Pharisees. They thought that they could stand. They thought they were righteous. And God tells us here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, to look at the Israelites and say, listen, if you think you're going to stand, you're going to fall just like your fathers did. And we need to look at these Pharisees and say that we need, if we think that we're going to stand, we need to take heed lest we fall as well. If you think that you're righteous enough to stand on your own, you're setting yourself up for a big fall. So you say, what's the solution to this? Is the solution to this just to, to be righteous? Oh, if you know your heart like I know my heart, that's like impossible. What you need to do is you need to trust God and His Word Trust by faith to fight the fight. Right? Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. You need to live your life continually trusting upon God's strength, not your own. Because you know in your own you're going to fall. But you know in God's strength, He can carry you through. Right? The good fight of faith is believing and trusting that in Christ you are completely righteous before God. Completely righteous. That's the message of the gospel. And you will never succeed over sin until you realize that your sin has been forgiven. You realize your sin is done and conquered. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Right, The sin that's been done away. Right, That's the sin that you can conquer. Believe that in Christ your sins are gone and pure and you stand righteous before God. Depend upon Him. Trust Him for enabling power. 
Paul said this. Listen to what he says. He says, Colossians 1.29, I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I'm fighting the fight of faith, and I'm pressing on, and I'm laboring, and I'm pursuing, but am I doing it on my own strength? With, with my own righteous heart? He said, I've got a sinful heart, and I'm trusting and I'm depending upon God by His power which mightily works within me. That's the fight of faith. That's the only fight that you'll be able to, to conquer with. Trusting and striving and laboring according to the power of Him which works within us mightily. And then the promise comes in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And here it is. Trusting again on God. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure. You know the way of escape? It's throwing yourself on God and allowing Him, trusting Him to bring you through and giving you the strength to conquer it and endure it. And the promise of Scripture says that you can endure it. How often do we fall in sin because sin opportunity comes and we say, I can't help myself. I can't help myself. I've got to do it. You know, whatever, because of past upbringing, because of, you know, other things that happen. I just can't help it. That's who I am, Lord. No, 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 you can, because it says here that he will provide the way of escape. It's the fight of faith. Trust him that mightily pursues over. It's the grace of God working in us. It's the mercy of God working in us that will give us the ability to conquer. Because when you have his grace, you know his grace, you know your wickedness. And you see, you need to trust Him to mightily work in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray these things would be true with us at church. We would work on the insides, that we would clean our hearts first. That from a cleansed heart, we would know of what sins forgiven is like. That we would be merciful and kind to others. That we would have victory over canceled sin. I pray, Lord, you would you'd stir insides, change your insides. Gives a, give us heart of flesh, not hard-hearted hearts. Cause us to walk in your ways, even as you promised in the, the new covenant. Cause us to walk in your ordinances. Make us to see. We do really pray for you for help. I pray, O oh Lord, also that you would cause us to see our sinfulness. I, I pray, Lord, that none of us would play the game of putting forth us to be more righteous than we are. But by the grace of God, can we stand and say that I may not be righteous, but in Christ I have been cleansed and I walk purely. God, may we know the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. To you be all glory and honor and praise. In His name we pray.